Well, just before we start, I'm going to make a, a quick announcement. So I want Jeff to be able to start exactly on time. Uh, the reception this evening will be right out here on the Bernardo patios. Really much nicer place than where we were indoors last night, a little bit hot and stuffy. They did that because they were worried about the uh, uh, thunderstorm breaking out, and we won't have that tonight. So it's a lovely place overlooking uh, the, um, well, golf course. Uh, if you want to pick up your beverage tickets, that's the free booze, uh, for tonight's reception and dinner, you can get those at the registration table. So if you want that, make sure you get those. And on time, you can start 11 seconds early. Great. <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome back. Um, so I think you can get the slides whenever. Um, so I'm basically going to start where I left off um, this morning. The first two slides are exactly what I ended with last time. So just to review, okay, I talked about what consequential libertarianism is, at least the way I define it. And noted that at some level, everyone sort of agrees with that approach. It's just saying we should be reasonable. We should weigh all the pros and cons of different policy options. Um, then discuss the fact that people do disagree wildly, even when they say they're accepting this same approach, the same framework. Okay? And we want to talk about why. And there are two possibilities. Two different people could have read the evidence on whether the minimum wage laws reduce employment differently. There's a huge range of studies. Some find relatively large disemployment effects. Sometimes some find pretty small disemployment effects. So of course, there's ample room for differences in the assessment of the existing knowledge, science, facts, whatever. Okay? Um, and that's certainly a piece of the disagreements that occur. But in addition, people clearly have different views over how we should choose policy, over which consequences should get a lot of weight, over how we should think about different kinds of effects of policy, on material things like GDP, on morality, on social norms, on liberty, and so on and so forth. So there's lots of basis for people to come to different conclusions. Um, so what I'm going to do this afternoon is to try to argue two things. The first is that even though there is room for disagreement about consequences, about the quote unquote science or the facts, okay, there shouldn't be that much disagreement, that if people are being honest and complete and consistent, they will recognize sort of two things. That a huge number of policies simply don't accomplish their stated goals. Whatever you think the goals should be or should not be, if a policy doesn't accomplish its stated goal, the thing that the advocates claimed it would do, then it's pretty hard to see a good reason for that policy regardless of anything else. And second, even in cases where the policies do accomplish what they set out to accomplish, and, even, and of course, as well, when they don't, they have all these other unintended consequences, the vast majority of which are negative, okay? and that those consequences are inevitable. It's not just that we haven't designed government policies well. Okay? A standard sort of liberal and sometimes even conservative mantra is it's true this aspect of government isn't functioning very well, but we just need to fix it. If we did it better than immigration laws would work, and then the healthcare.gov healthcare would work, and so on and so forth. What I want to argue is that it's in the nature of these interventions to have a large range of adverse consequences. 
And all that's part of convincing you that the set of conclusions I just announced in the, in the morning, okay, my vision of what policy should be under consequential libertarians, is in fact convincing, okay, because policy interventions have all of these bad effects. Now, of course, I could have gone about things a somewhat different way, could have taken some specific policies, okay, and talked through the costs and benefits in detail of those policies. And that's, of course, incredibly useful to do, but it seemed a bit more useful here in this setting to try to draw your attention to the general con consistent negative effects that occur across a broad range of policies to give you the feeling that this huge range of negatives is inevitable and large rather than just picking on a few particular examples. Hey, now, the second thing I want to convince you is that while it's undoubtedly right that people say they have different values, and they may well have different values, some people really do want to have a distribution of income that's far more even than what a market mechanism would generate. Okay? Some people really do okay, care about particular views of ethics or morality uh, or fairness or whatever. Okay? But I want to argue that at least with respect to the most important set of differences in values, okay, and somewhat independent of the specific definitions you would give to each of these three things, it doesn't matter whether you think the goal of policy should be efficiency, maximizing GDP per capita, or it should be to maximize liberty, or it should be to maximize equity, however you want to define it, that whichever goal you think is the right goal, you should still be led to the small government vision that I uh, outlined this morning. You should still think that most interventions okay, are counterproductive or bad for all of those objectives. Okay? And so we don't really have to argue about values, at least not uh, nearly as much as people tend to think. Okay, so consequences of intervention. Then I will talk very briefly about maximizing efficiency versus maximizing liberty. And then I'll talk much more about maximizing efficiency, so maximizing GDP or something like that, versus some consideration of equity. So I first want to just hammer the point that interventions, many interventions, don't work even in accomplishing what they're supposed to accomplish. Okay? If that's the case, we don't have to argue about whether the goals made sense. Okay? There's lots of evidence that many, many policies have this problem. So I'm going to do this mainly with some illustrations. So the uh, yellow line, orange line, is the U.S. homicide rate, okay, per one, number of homicides per 100,000 over the uh, last 25 years or so. So you can see, if you'd gone back a little farther, if, if I had gone back a little farther, it comes up here. It's very high during the crack, uh, quote unquote, epidemic in the 1980s. And then there's been this really striking and persistent decline in the number of homicides okay, per population. Most European countries are still well below the US, but back in the 80s, the US looked like an extreme outlier with a homicide rate of 8, 9, 10 when European countries were at 1 to 2. Now we look higher, but not nearly so dramatic. And a few of those European countries have actually had their violence rates go up a little bit. So that's a measure of violence. And this blue line is the percent of the population that lives in a state okay, that allows concealed carry of handguns. So just for those of you who are not familiar with this particular issue, back in the early 80s, okay, many, many states, okay, most people could not get a permit, a permit in their state to carry a concealed weapon. Okay? 
There was frequently some exceptions for, for certain special cases, uh, even in, in those states. But broadly speaking, just a general citizen couldn't walk down, get a permit, and be able to legally carry. Gradually, over this period, more and more states have passed laws that legalize concealed carry. At this point, 70% of the population lives in a state where it's legal to carry a concealed handgun. Now it's useful to go back and read the sorts of statements that were made by opponents of this law, of these changes, okay, at the time. They were saying things like, there will be blood on the street. We will see arguments over sneakers between two high school kids resolved with, with guns routinely. Anytime there's a traffic, a fender bender traffic stop, we'll see people shooting each other okay, because they can't agree whose fault it was if we allow concealed carry. Okay? That seems like utter nonsense. The violence rate has gone down dramatically over exactly the period when more and more people are carrying concealed weapons. Okay? And indeed, there's an argument that allowing people to carry concealed weapons should reduce violence, because if you're a criminal or a possible criminal and you think the people around you are armed, you might be somewhat more hesitant to attack them uh, than if you think they're unarmed. So this is a case where it's sort of the reverse. The claim was that passing this law was going to have these disastrous effects. In fact, it didn't have anything like those disastrous effects, if anything, the reverse. The minimum legal drinking age of 21 okay, had been in existence for a bunch of states okay, in the 70s, okay, early 80s. But many states still had an 18-year-old drinking age as of 1983 or so. And Congress passed a law called the Federal Unemployment, Federal Underage Driving Act, FUDA, which mandated that every state had to raise its drinking age to 21 if it wanted to keep federal highway money. Okay? So that was a very famous case. It went to the Supreme Court. It was called Dolvey. Um, I'm blank. I'm having a senior moment. But uh, it involved Elizabeth Dole. Um, who was the Secretary of Transportation at the South Dakota v. Dole. South Dakota didn't want to raise its age to 21, and they sued to prevent it, and they lost. So every state okay, ended up saying, well, to heck with it. Okay, this orange line is the percentage of the population that has a 21-year-old drinking age, and they went from being relatively modest, only about 50% before Congress passed that law, to once Congress passed the law and the Supreme Court ruled, every state has now adopted a 21-year-old drinking age because they don't want to lose their highway funds. Okay? So what was this increase supposed to do? It was supposed to dramatically lower traffic fatalities for 18 to 20-year-olds. That was the standard argument for raising the drinking age. Well, a naive analysis would say, oh, look, motor vehicle fatalities, auto fatalities, are lower here okay, when everybody has 21-year-old than they were here before we passed the law. Okay? But that's nonsense because there was a pre-existing downward trend that actually goes back even farther. It goes like this okay? in fatalities, especially fatalities per vehicle mile traveled. U.S. roads and the traffic on those roads has gone no done nothing but go up, okay? and yet fatalities are going down. Okay? So this law seemed to have had zero effect okay, on the number of traffic fatalities for 18 to 20-year-olds. Okay? Um, it didn't by itself seem to do anything too terrible either. Um, in, in, in this setting, okay, but it clearly didn't have its intended effect. Another kind of policy it's useful to think about is Medicaid. What's Medicaid supposed to do? It's supposed to help poor people, and particularly children in poor families. So one measure of that okay, would be life expectancy at birth. Sorry, I meant to say Medicare for the elderly, not Medicaid. Okay. 
This is a measure of life expectancy over time for male-female total. Okay? And you can easily see from the graph where Medicare went into effect because at that point, life expectancy starts going up much faster. Except it doesn't. Okay? Life expectancy has been increasing for decades and decades before 1965, it was about here. Okay? And then maybe there's a little bump there, but there's no meaningful change in the upward trend of life expectancy. So all the money we're spending on Medicare at some level to help okay, elderly people live longer, it's impossible to see any direct effect of that in these data. And there's a very well done uh, more paper, you know, economics paper published in a good journal that comes to exactly the same conclusion with more sophisticated data. Okay? This, I thought I was, I meant to started talking about it before, this is a similar analysis for Medicaid, which is supposed to help poor people and particularly children. Medicaid goes into effect approximately 65, 66. And you can see again, it obviously changed the rate at which uh, infants were dying, except it didn't. Infant mortality had been going down for decades okay, before Medicaid went into effect. If anything, the rate at which it's declining slowed down okay, after Medicaid goes into effect. So again, billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars spent, very difficult to see one of a beneficial effect, at least from this measure. Okay, so those are just examples. Okay? We could go on and on about government policies that don't do what they allegedly are supposed to do. Okay? In addition, of course, they're going to have lots of other consequences. So I want to next try to talk about the general negatives that interventions are going to have. And these are less sort of the straightforward economics negatives, although one or two of them are those, and more a broad set of effects they have on social norms, on civil society, and things like that, that are all reasons that we should be very suspicious okay, of interventions. So first one very, is relatively straightforward, taxes. Any intervention okay, requires raising some taxes to make sure the policy is enforced. For some kinds of policies like Food and Drug Administration, the amount of expenditure for the agency okay, is pretty trivial compared to the total amount of economic activity it affects, but still requires some expenditure. And obviously for policies like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, okay, they require huge amounts of taxes to be raised okay, in order to pay for them. Now why is that a negative? Okay? It's useful to think a little bit more detail about why exactly it's a negative. Okay, one reason, oops, sorry. Um, one reason taxes are a negative is because of compliance costs, because people spend hours and hours, lots of money on tax preparers and things like that to comply with this messy, complicated tax code. Okay? But that is probably small potatoes okay, compared to this, which is the distortion in economic efficiency. Now, this is a point where economists say something that is generally regarded as nerdy okay, and sort of stupid and ivory towerish, but. The problem with taxes to economists is not that the government took some money from you. Why not? Because it gave it to somebody else. The mere act of taking your money away hasn't destroyed any resources. They're the same number of people, the same number of factories, same number of schools, everything else. Okay? It's just different people have different amounts of wealth. So why are taxes negative? Taxes are negative for economic efficiency because almost all taxes distort your decisions about what to purchase, how hard to work, 
how much to save, where firms should locate, and so on. So economists sometimes refer to those as deadweight losses when they're talking about economic efficiency. If the government puts a tax on apples, that makes the consumers of apples worse off because they pay the taxes, okay? but it makes somebody else better off because they're going to receive those taxes in the form of Medicare payments or Social Security payments or whatever. But the crucial fact is the government has altered your choice about whether to buy apples versus other stuff. That's a distortion. That changes the efficiency of the economy by making you do things for tax reasons rather than because they're more productive to do things one way or another or to consume one good as opposed to another good. Okay? Now, that effect okay, uh, is almost certainly very large. Standard examples I have up here, taxing goods, taxing income, taxing businesses, and so on. Okay? The reason that the taxes, the effects are likely to be large is that the magnitude of the distortion goes up with the square of the tax rate. If government imposes a 1% tax rate on you, it's hard to see it's going to change your decisions very much. A 2% is going to be more, and it turns out it's going to be more than twice as much. And a 4% is even more, and you can see that intuitively by thinking about going to a 100% tax rate. If the tax rate is 100%, then that's going to completely change your decisions. And so the more expenditure we have, the higher tax rates we need, and the more we're distorting economic activity. Okay? Typical estimates for an economy like the US right now are if the government wants to raise a dollar, it costs the economy in terms of lost efficiency a dollar and 20 cents. Okay? Now, 20 cents doesn't sound like a lot of money, but what you should really think of is it's 1.2 times the total revenue that the government is raising. So if the government is raising trillions of dollars in tax revenue, that means that the inefficiency that's being generated is hundreds of billions of dollars each year. Okay, second general phenomenon that many, many government interventions have is to prevent what economists call Pareto improving or same thing as mutually beneficial exchanges. So Pareto improving exchange is one in which at least one party is better off and nobody is worse off. So that is the standard economics criterion for deciding okay, whether a, a particular arrangement is efficient or not. If this intervention prevents okay, a Pareto improving exchange, okay, then it's clearly reduced efficiency. It's made the economy worse off because someone could be better off without harming anyone else in the economy. Okay. So, we take as given that voluntary exchange is Pareto improving. Okay? People wouldn't engage in voluntary exchange unless it was benefiting at least one person, because it always takes at least a little time to, to engage in the exchange. And the other person wouldn't participate if the other person didn't think it left them at least as well off, if not better off. And of course, in many situations, we think that both parties are better off from voluntary exchange. When you buy something from uh, a retail store, you think you're better off, you got the good rather than the money, and you value the good more than the money, and the store owner thinks that he or she is better off because they got the money rather than the good. Okay? So tons of policies uh, are inefficient. They reduce the amount of output the economy can produce because they prevent Pareto improving exchange. So what are examples? Okay? Vice prohibitions. Whatever you think about drug use being good or bad, whatever you think about the crime, corruption, et cetera, the vast majority of people who try to consume drugs or prostitution or gambling or alcohol are making a decision 
to consume it. They think that they're better off as a result of using their money to buy that than not, than not or spending it on something else or saving it. So a prohibition is interfering okay, with a potentially mutually beneficial exchange between the drug seller and the drug buyer. Okay, so that's a cost okay, of the prohibition. Okay. Different kind of example okay, is OSHA regulation. OSHA regulation, Occupational Safety and Health Administration regulation, says that companies can't simply hire workers to do really dangerous jobs, okay, even if the worker is perfectly willing to do that job at a low wage. The OSHA regulation says the company has to regulate, okay, has to adjust the way the job is done to reduce the safety. That's preventing a mutually beneficial exchange. There are some workers who are perfectly happy to do really dangerous jobs, even for low wages, Okay, and of course, the employer, in some cases, wants to hire them to do that. So this regulation interferes with Pareto Improving Exchange. Collective bargaining laws are interfering with the ability of some people who want to work for low wages and employers who want to hire them from doing so, or from people who want to go across strike lines and so on from doing that. They would be engaging in mutually beneficial exchange with, their, with those employers and the collective bargaining laws try to prevent that in the interest of keeping wages higher. Price controls is a classic example. Somebody wants to sell you a good at a higher price, you'd be willing to buy it at that higher price, but the government won't let you do it because it thinks there's some value to keeping the prices down. Antitrust laws prevent two companies that want to merge from merging, okay? even though both companies think it would be in their interest uh, to engage in that transaction. Same thing with gun controls, okay, and so on. Okay? So, this is just a subset of all the possible examples. It illustrates a whole set of different kinds of things that no matter what else they might be doing, good or bad, at a minimum, they're interfering with people's ability to um, engage in voluntary exchange, and that's bad for the, oh, uh, bad for the efficiency of the economy. Now, I got into big trouble last year by having child labor laws on the list. So the example with child labor laws is have a law that says you can't work okay, in the legal sector outside of the home unless you're at least 15 or something like that. Okay? So that may have a beneficial effect on some kids. Maybe some parents will send their kids off and make them work long hours after school in a way that's not in the interest of those children. So you can imagine that a child labor law for some parents and children has a beneficial effect. You might not like the idea of being paternalistic. You might have many reasons to object, but ignore that for the moment. But even if there's some parents like that, there also are probably some families where the parents and the kids are quite right that the kid would be better off spending long hours scooping ice cream or flipping burgers than trying to study something the child is not interested in or can't master, <coughs> or being outside playing baseball or whatever. Maybe that income is vital to the family's finances. And so the child labor law is again going to prevent some Pareto improving transactions between families and the, and the employers. Campaign finance regulation is presenting some people, corporations, et cetera, from giving money to candidates they want to support. Both sides think it makes them better off. Um, compulsory education, similar issues. Zoning, similar issues, and so on. Okay, so first set of effects from um, interventions generally is the tax distortions necessary to pay for the expenditure. Second general effect is interfering with voluntary exchange, which reduces the efficiency of the economy. 
A different effect, not a sort of simple sort of economic effect, is dishonesty and disrespect for the law. Almost a whole set of government programs can clearly be easily avoided, evaded, circumvented in one way or another because enforcement is hard. Okay, all you have to do is walk down to your local high school and see the kids who are standing behind the back of the building in the woods, you know, not doing too much, looking sort of nervous to realize okay, anybody who wants to buy drugs okay, can buy drugs. You just have to find the local high school, the local taxi stand or whatever. Okay? And not that I know from personal experience, but <laughs> I'm told. Um, and so all sorts of programs are disobeyed extremely often, even if they're obeyed some of the time. The people who obey laws like that are losing out. There's some people who want to consume marijuana, but they think that they should respect the law, or they think that they might get punished, so they don't. They lose out relative to the people who are reasonably correct in assuming they're unlikely to get caught for just buying a little marijuana. Okay? And so the honest, or the law-abiding, suffer relative to the dishonest okay, when you have laws <coughs> that can be widely circumvented. Okay? Everybody learns that laws for suckers, so intervention okay, fosters the attitude that rules are made to be broken. Having all these rules that can't possibly be enforced in a general, consistent way okay, is going to undermine the idea that we all should obey the rules because everybody else is obeying the rules and we only have a very small, simple set of rules and therefore okay, it's pretty easy to monitor and pretty easy for everybody to get uh, behind those rules. An example, okay, my family and I spent six months in France okay, about 15 years ago and it became very obvious that in France there were way more rules. Okay? Buying anything, renting a car, God forbid trying to buy a house, it's just a nightmare of regulation. No matter how bad you think the US is, France was much worse. Okay? Then toward the end of our trip we were in Paris and we went to Euro Disney. Okay? And if you've been to Disneyland US, one thing that's notable is that people don't cut the lines. Okay? They stay in the lines, they wait. Okay? There allegedly are like rich people like Ben Affleck who hire people to they wait in the lines for them and things like that. But <laughs> that aside, there's general sort of obedience to the rules. In Euro Disney, the French were cutting the lines right, left, and center. And it made perfect sense. There's so many rules there, you can't possibly obey them all. Okay? If you tried to obey them all, you would just you would be passed by by everybody else around you. You couldn't do it. So you get in the habit of just breaking rules all the time and it carried over to amusement parks uh, in addition to lots of other things. So some examples. Again, prohibitions against vice they are going to be widely disobeyed, breed disrespect for the law. Speed limits, okay, even relatively reasonable rules like speed limits, still they're not very well enforced. Almost everybody thinks it's safer in a lot of cases to go a little bit above the speed limit than to go exactly the speed limit. <coughs> Excuse me. So that again teaches people that rules are made to be broken. Same with the safety and health regulation in restaurants or in manufacturing firms. One thing you should never do if you want to enjoy eating at restaurants is go back in the kitchen at restaurants because you will see things that will horrify you. None of those rules is really being obeyed on a regular basis at a huge fraction of restaurants. So everybody learns about that. Minimum wage laws and rent controls. For minimum wage laws, there are, of course, lots of ways to circumvent them by making people part-time, by splitting them up into pretend you know, second people, by just faking invoices and things like that. 
for rent controls. In Cambridge in particular, there was this phenomenon that people who lucked into them never ever sort of just gave the apartment back to the landlord. You struck a deal with your friends okay, who wanted the rent controlled apartments that they would get them. And so you had these very cheap apartments passed from relatively middle or upper income people to income people okay, rather than helping the people that they were supposed to help. Most famous example of someone uh, living in a rent control apartment for almost no money is? Okay, that's one, that's a good example. Even more famous. Mia Farrow and Woody Allen, so. Who is the other one? Charlie Rangel. Okay, so there's a bunch of good examples, okay, and that's part of the idiocy of rent control, and again, it breeds uh, this disrespect for the law. Okay? Um, affirmative action. Okay, why does affirmative action breed disrespect for the law? Because lots of places, when, it's when affirmative action is being imposed by government, are doing things that are cynical. They're hiring a minority so that they can claim that they care about hiring minorities, and yet people realize that that person you know, is not necessarily representative. They realize that person's been done simply for compliance, and it makes people be more cynical about laws generally. Okay? Uh, the licensing, permits, entry fees, in many countries widely disregarded, so again, breeds disrespect. And more generally, high tax rates, complicated tax codes, of course, teaches everyone you should just find the right lawyers, you should do all sorts of things, legal or, or maybe not so legal, okay, to minimize your taxes. Um, and perhaps the, the best example of all is campaign finance. Okay? Many of you have seen ads that are not Okay, subject to the law, therefore an issue. Okay, one of the distinctions in the campaign finance law now is there are limits on how much you can give as an individual to candidates, but not how much you can give for issue ads. So candidates run issue ads that say, if you're in favor of such and such a policy, vote for Bill Clinton. Okay, well, that's really an ad for Bill Clinton. It's not really an issue ad, okay, but that also is allowed under cynical interpretations of the rules. More rules just breeds more contempt for the law. A different, okay, but somewhat related, is polarization. Okay? There's lots of interventions that push all of society, all of the, of the country, to think that they should behave in a certain way, and to have rules that says everybody has to behave in that way. Okay? People are different. They have a range of views, and despite what sort of liberals think and conservatives think, there's a pretty big range of reasonable views on a lot of issues. Okay? So, if, with, given that, if you impose one position, okay, you're going to force a lot of people into something that they think is bad. Okay? And you might all agree that that's bad, but it's very different to think that what a particular way of doing things is bad from, in, from forcing everybody to do it that way uh, using the law. Or you're forcing everyone to accept a position as reasonable that many people find highly disagreeable. So let's look at. Um, examples. Okay? Classic example is abortion. Okay? There's clearly a huge range of views okay, about whether abortion is a bad thing or not. Okay? There's a huge range of views about whether it should be legal or not. The sort of middle opinion in the United States recent years is that people tend to want it to remain legal, but they don't want it to be completely unrestricted. They think that keeping it to, say, first trimester abortions is reasonable and so on, which is approximately what the law is in the United States at the moment. But what Roe v. Wade did, Roe v. Wade and the, law, and the decision that came after, was to say to states, you can't choose your abortion policy anymore. 
Okay? Up until Roe, each state was in charge of its own abortion laws. Basically, abortion laws were an extension of the laws against murder. You have to define where murder begins and where, where murder ends. Okay? And states were different. Indeed, states were changing. A lot of states had moderated their anti-abortion laws to some degree. Five states before Roe v. Wade had fully legalized abortion on demand, and two of those were large states, New York and California. Okay? And my hunch is that if the Supreme Court had done nothing, if there had never been any Roe, over time, most states would have moved to a laxer abortion policy, but some states would have retained relatively strict abortion laws. That would have been beneficial in my view. I'm not making a statement about the Constitution. I'm gonna leave all that to Randy Barnett. But as a matter of public policy, leaving it all to the states would have meant that people who were strongly opposed to abortion could have chosen to live in states that prohibited abortion. People who were strongly opposed to abortion but didn't want to move could still take some comfort from realizing that maybe there were states where it's outlawed. They could take some comfort from knowing that their view was not being squashed and, told and, with, and labeled as totally illegitimate okay, by centralized government in DC by the Supreme Court. In fact, what happened, the Supreme Court said states cannot ban abortion, okay, even though at the time many states did. Okay, and that, as you've seen, has led to this huge polarization over this issue, tons and tons of debate and fighting and disagreement that I think wouldn't have occurred if it had simply been left as a state policy, a less polarizing approach. Okay, public schools are similar okay, until Fairly well, it depends exactly where you want to start it. But starting in the 1960s, the federal government started to get involved in education, and it's gotten more and more involved over the last several decades, and No Child Left Behind took a huge leap in federalizing it even more. So now, with things like the Common Core, we have the federal government telling every state okay, what it has to teach, what it can do, putting on all these restrictions, mandating high-stakes testing, and the like. Okay? That leads people in some parts of the country to be really furious because they're forced to teach curricula okay, that they're opposed to. Now, in some cases, I think those people opposing those particular curricula are goofy. There are people opposing you know, teaching of, of um, theory of evolution and wanting to uh, teach intelligent design. I think that's silly. Okay? But I think that if we let each state make its decision, you would get a far better set of allocations. It would indeed be less likely that those states would choose to take those strong stands because they would feel they had the freedom to do what they wanted rather than being told by the federal government what it is that they have to teach. Um, similar example for gay marriage. Okay? Again, thinking about it as federal versus state. Okay? If the state is gonna impose, if the federal government's gonna impose one policy, okay, then a lot of people in a lot of states are gonna be really unhappy. If it's determined state by state as a result of uh, judicial decisions within the state or ballot initiative within the state, okay, you're going to see there be variety and people who feel really strongly will not feel that their views have been completely ignored or completely squashed people are in, in both directions and you will get a less polarized, a more civil society. Do I have another example? Affirmative action, same general principles. Still another kind of effect of having government intervene all the time okay, is to reduce self-reliance. Okay? There's tons of policies that suggest people are too dumb to make decisions on their own. If people are dumb, okay, then uh, we need to interfere. Now, it's clearly true that a few people, OK, 
Okay, I'm sure we can all think of our favorite person in this category, okay, would benefit from being protected from themselves. I'm certainly not gonna stand up here and say everybody does everything right all the time. We all make mistakes, and some of us make a lot of mistakes. So, so cl clearly, if you were talking about your kids, you'd wanna have the ability to try to tell your kids what to do to protect them from themselves. Although, for those of you who are old enough to have been a parent, you probably agree with me that trying to get your kids to do the right thing, even when you have their best interest at heart, is pretty tough. Paternalism, even by potters and maters, is not so easy. Okay? Um, but you can't do that. You can't intervene and try to tell people they can't do this or that without creating a general atmosphere of people not using their own brains, of reducing their self-reliance and their sense of personal responsibility because you're saying to them over and over again, you can't figure out what financial products to buy, so we're gonna tell you. You can't figure out what foods to buy, so we're gonna tell you, and so on and so forth. That's gonna change people's incentives, okay, to think for themselves. So again, we'll look at examples, okay? Uh, laws against false and misleading advertising. Okay, now you might think that those laws sort of make sense from a libertarian perspective, Okay, it's to some degree, you could probably justify those as sort of protecting a property right defined in a certain way. Okay, but just in terms of thinking about the consequences, my view is if people think there's no false and misleading advertising in the world, they're gonna use their brains a little bit less to think about the claims that advertising are making. To an economist, okay, if somebody's trying to sell you something, you should realize they're trying to sell you something for a reason. Okay? So whenever you see any ad, you should be thinking, I'm gonna take that with a big grain of salt. That's what the manufacturer, the seller of this product wants me to believe, but I have to use independent information, my own judgment, to decide whether it makes sense. Okay? Um, prohibitions on bad things, okay? again, okay, are gonna affect people's ability to think for themselves. They're in, they're the, the norm that somebody, you know, some, you're a teenager, at a, you're at a party, somebody, that you sort of know wants you to take some, bill, some pill, you have no idea what it is, maybe you should think about that. Maybe you should use your brain and take care of yourself rather than just thinking that somehow it's been taken care of for you. Nutritional guidelines okay, are, okay, again, trying to tell people that the government knows what you should eat. Of course, it often gives bad advice, as we can see from the changes in the nutritional guidelines over time, and it's uh, reinforcing the notion that people can't think for themselves. Regulation of decency content on television, same thing. Child labor laws are telling parents that we don't trust them to decide what's in the best interest of their children. Compulsory education is telling parents we don't trust them to decide how much or whether their children should get an education. Social Security is saying we don't trust people to decide whether to save for their retirement or how much to save for their retirement. Okay? Uh, the safety regulation in occupations, food labeling laws, um, Licensure restrictions on medicine or law are telling people we don't trust them to think about whether that doctor is a good doctor, to do some research to find out from your friends, from a website, from an independent certification agency, whether this doctor or lawyer is a good uh, person to go to. We, as a government, are going to do that for you and expect you to just trust that the people that we licensed okay, are okay and you shouldn't go to anyone else. So, Next, okay, and this is the one that gets me in most trouble with all my sort of lefty friends because they think it's ridiculous exaggeration, but I beg to differ, is that all policies are at some level thought control. Okay? Some examples are easy. If government's funding education, 
even if it's not supplying education directly in public schools, if government is funding education, okay, then it has to decide what constitutes education, whether it's with tax credits or vouchers or education savings account, whatever, the government still has to define what you can use those monies for. Say it's vouchers. Government says, we're giving you a voucher and you can use it to buy education for your 12-year-old. Does that mean you can use it to send your kid to ski school, to French immersion school, to cooking school? What exactly does it mean? Government's going to impose some restrictions on that. It's going to put some limits, and that means that the government is changing thought, is changing the set of ideas that's regarded as acceptable by defining what constitutes education. Same thing is clearly true for funding research. There are rational arguments why government might want to fund some kinds of research. It's possible the amount of research done by a purely private market might be insufficient. But if the government gets in the business, it has to decide which kinds of research to do, what's important, which ones we care about. That means it's taking a stand on what's important and what's worth doing. That's a form of thought control. All economic regulation is taking a stand on how markets work. It's saying, we think markets work in this way, they're inefficient in these ways, and it's dictating that that's what everybody's supposed to believe. That's a subtle form of thought control. Redistributing income or regulating campaign finance is taking a stand on being rich, on having a lot of money. It's saying that some of those things are worse than others. It's saying that if we let money into politics, Okay, that certain views will get more represented or more expressed and be more successful, and that those are wrong. Okay? It's not a neutral thing of just saying we're going to decide things reasonably. It's clearly taking a stand against a particular set of views that's associated with money. That's, again, a form of thought control. So even without you know, explicit thought control, even without Big Brother in 1984 and all that sort of stuff, every single thing the government does to intervene is taking a stance on the way the world works, on the way it should work, okay? and that's trying to change the way people think about it. It's interfering with their, with their freedom, with their liberty to think about the world on their own. Okay? And to me, that's a potentially huge cost okay, of government. Now I want to deal with one other sort of issue, which is um, the following. A lot of the things that I would advocate to many people, not necessarily people in this room, but even in a few cases, the people in this room, sound extreme. Okay? And often, the libertarian positions on what policies we should have sound like we're saying, markets do things perfectly, therefore, there's no room for the government to improve them, and so we should just stay out. Okay? That's not a very persuasive line. Nobody, not Milton Friedman, not the most diehard Hayekian really believes that markets work perfectly by any measure of perfect. Okay? What we think is that markets work better okay, when they're less encumbered by government, that markets work better than government, but we don't think they work perfectly. Okay? So if they don't work perfectly, perhaps there are some small interventions which might nudge things in a good direction. Okay? If okay, some people okay, don't make thoughtful choices about the foods they buy or the medicines they buy, Maybe a very simple thing like a labeling requirement okay, actually is on net a good thing. Not banning any medicines, not banning any foods, okay, just saying to every manufacturer of a food or medication, you have to label what's in your product. That's all. 
in and of itself, that doesn't seem like it could do much harm. Okay? Indeed, we would expect that most consumers would want to know what's in the products they purchased, and so the marketplace would force most manufacturers to label their goods and their com commodities anyway, so a requirement that they have to label it by itself doesn't sound so bad. Okay? So in a lot of settings, okay, you, one can make, and economists routinely do make an argument that it, markets don't work perfectly if we do just the right little tweak of the intervention, we'll make things a little bit better, okay? But all of those have to do with making a small intervention, okay? Not with radical changes in the way things are done, given that markets tend to work okay, and that big interventions, okay, can have these big negative effects that we just discussed. But, okay, the crucial thing is small interventions do not stay small. Okay? If you could be confident clearly can't, but if you could be confident that small interventions would stay small, there might be a handful that you could make a reasonable economic case for. Okay? Reality is the opposite. Any entity, if you're an individual, you're a business, you're a nonprofit, you're a government, how do you survive? You try to grow. You try to get bigger in scope, in size, in whatever, in your budget, the number of people you employ, and so on. So interventions routinely become much more than originally intended. Okay, and then it's much, much harder to believe it could possibly be doing uh, more good than harm. So again, with examples, okay, the Civil Rights Act. Okay, lots of people, I think including in this room, would think that the intention of the Civil Rights Act to reduce or eliminate discrimination against African Americans was totally well-intentioned. And you may still think that some parts of the Civil Rights Act were a positive thing, but it's gone way beyond those intentions to the point where it now, parts of the Civil Rights Act, require private colleges to have the same number of athletic scholarships for women as men. Why is the federal government in that business at all? It's just completely loony. Okay, so even a very well-intentioned, okay, and perhaps successful, even according to even many libertarians, intervention has gone farther okay, and done things which are not, not nearly so obviously desirable. Back to the labeling requirement, the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, okay, in fact, just said firms had to label. And that's all it said. And shortly thereafter, the federal government sued, sorry, it, uh, yeah, it sued um, Coca-Cola for not having cocaine anymore because they said the name implied that it did have cocaine and yet that didn't appear on the list of ingredients in Coca-Cola. <laughs> but you know, that aside, the Pure Food and Drug Act has gone from a simple labeling requirement by itself pretty innocuous to the Food and Drug Administration, which as we discussed earlier, almost certainly on net kills people rather than helping people because it prevents and delays the introduction of useful medications. Okay? Social Security started out actually as state level programs. About 30 states had a Social Security system of their own in the, by the early 1930s. These programs were really stingy. Okay, the amounts of benefits they provided by today's standards were really small. There were extreme wealth tests. If you really had any wealth at all, you were ineligible. They had strict residency requirements. You had to have lived in that state for at least five years because they didn't want people just moving into the state when they turned 65 and so on. Okay? So, and would those have been really horrible? Would those have been a terrible thing? No. Maybe they're not something libertarians would have created on their own. But if a social security system had stayed at that level, at that structure, state level, really small level of benefits, only for people who would clearly outlive their ability 
to earn a living on their own and just providing a bare minimum of support so people didn't starve to death, I don't think even libertarians would object too much. But the current social security system, okay, which came out of federalizing it and the growth since then, is of course hugely important in the US economy. Tons of expenditure, which means tons of taxes and tax distortion. Huge effects on people's retirement decisions, which are inefficient. Likely effects on people's savings and so on and so forth. So again, a small program clearly did not stay small. Um, Medicare. Medicare, in some sense different, okay, it overall design from since 1965 has not changed radically, but the set of things, the amount of expenditure has gone up by orders of magnitude relative to earlier projections. So this is a case where it was not so much deliberate expansion of the program, although there's a little bit of that, things like the prescription drug benefit, it's more that they didn't know that it was going to stay small, and they were wrong. It didn't stay small. If you look at the, the projection they did, say, for 1990 in 1965, okay, the amount was 10 times. And then, of course, they did a new projection in 1990 of what projection would be in 2010, and it's off by another order of magnitude. So again, a small problem, a program doesn't stay small. Antitrust, when it was first designed, was meant to target extreme things like naked price fixing and other obvious, you know, seriously anti-competitive acts. It's now used to discourage all sorts of mergers and to go after companies for things which are at best slightly, potentially anti-competitive. The best example is the Microsoft suit okay, from the 1990s. One of the things for which Microsoft was sued by the Justice Department was for integrating a spell checker into the Word document program because that was going to harm other people who were making independent spell checking programs and help Microsoft have a quote unquote monopoly on operating systems and word processing programs and that was a key basis of the government suit. That's Looney Tunes, okay? I mean it just, but it's again almost inevitable because once you create a division of the Justice Department whose job is to prosecute antitrust cases, they want to find stuff that looks like antitrust cases. There's a saying that if someone has just discovered a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So that's what's going to happen with some sorts of government agencies. Education, we already talked about a little bit. Um, okay, the state level, indeed local level interventions in education, okay, which were relatively small. They were K through six or K through eight, okay, and they were uh, at the local level. Have now expanded to the point we have the federal government taking a big role in education throughout the country, subsidizing loans for college, state universities is where over three quarters of students go to college and so on and so forth, a relatively small intervention which arguably was pretty reasonable and didn't do huge harm by itself but grew to uh, way bigger than is possibly uh, defensible. And economic regulation, there are just billions of examples. The number of pages in the Federal Register every month just shows you that you think we haven't passed any new regulations or new laws, why are we setting up new regulations and yet uh, all of those agencies are promulgating new stuff okay, day by day. I'm getting behind so I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Okay, so this is just one example of things that should stay small, don't stay small. This is, this blue line is a measure of the total expenditure per pupil okay, on K through 12 education in the U.S. This was created by Andrew Coulson, one of my Cato colleagues. So it's gone up since 1970 by 180%. Okay? 
this orange line is the number of employees. So that's a slightly different measure of the expansion of the public school sector. This is test scores. Okay. Now you think sort of some rational person thinking about these data sort of back here would have said, gee, you know, it's not obvious we're having any beneficial effects. Maybe we should rethink what we're doing. But no, just plows ahead. Okay, so again, small stuff doesn't stay small, okay, pretty much independent of what the evidence says about that stuff. Okay, so interventions have all these bad consequences over and above the obvious sort of economic effects that uh, we talk about in other places. Um, but the problem is people can agree on the consequences. Lots of people can agree there's all that bad stuff and yet disagree on the policies because they have different values. So I want to talk about that directly. So three possible objectives, as I've mentioned, for policy. What I'll label efficiency, maximum output per unit of input or maximum output per hour or something like that. Um, some well-designed measure of economic welfare in terms of GDP and leisure. Liberty, there's lots and lots of ways to try to find liberty. I'm for today just going to call it minimal interference, being left alone. The government is not stopping you from doing the things that you want to do, whatever those things are, except in the obvious cases where that clearly harms someone else, like theft or violence. Okay? And last, okay, it could be trying to promote or maximize equity, fairness, morality, justice, or something. And of course, I have absolutely no idea what any of those things mean. So that's why the question marks are there. But say something more specific in a minute. Okay? So I want to ask, what are the implications of taking any of these three things as your objective for policy for how much we should actually intervene? So efficiency versus liver. Here, I'm just going to say to a first approximation, they're exactly the same. Okay? Anything you can do to increase output per person okay, is also going to increase liberty. Okay? And so we don't really have to debate which of those two we're trying to promote. Okay? Um, interventions do almost always do two things. They generate the bad consequences I've discussed. That's bad for efficiency. They interfere with individual liberties. It's obviously bad for liberty. So I think it's very hard to think of policies. I hope somebody will try to come up with some examples in the Q&A or later. Hard to think of any policy that is pro-efficiency but anti-liberty or vice versa. So I'm going to assume those, are the, those two objectives are so closely aligned that we don't really need to debate them. Efficiency versus equity. Okay? The standard view is that policy faces a trade-off between efficiency and equity, between the size of the pie and whether the pie is divided up in a fair or reasonable or just way. And that's based on assuming that by equity, fairness, et cetera, what we're really talking about is income. And that's the only aspect of equity I'm really going to talk about because I think the vast majority of other uses of fairness, justice, equity are really just code for somebody wants more income or wants more redistribution of income. So I'm just going to take that as explicitly what we're discussing. Okay? So the standard view is that you can do things that will let us have a really big economic pie, but if you do that, inevitably it's going to be divided up more unfairly. Okay, the rich are going to get richer, the poor, poorer, blah, 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 all that stuff. Okay? So that seems to imply, if you accept the conventional view, that government should redistribute from richer to poor. Okay? Certainly our president would seem to agree with that. Okay? So let's talk about 
um, the kinds of po how policies relate to the distribution of income. There's two kinds of policies to talk about. Okay, one would be policies that are explicitly designed to redistribute, okay, the, whose goal is redistribution. Social Security, Medicare, welfare, uh, TANF, energy allowances, et cetera. The purpose of those policies is to help people who have less income have more income. More. In some cases, like Social Security and Medicare, help people who satisfy certain criteria, such as being elderly, have more income than they otherwise would. The goal of those policies is to redistribute. Okay? There also are policies that have some other goal. Okay? Food and Drug Administrations trying to promote safety with medicines. Okay? The um, antitrust is trying to sort of promote competition, all sorts of other things. And so um, virtually all other policies, whatever their objective, I want to argue, also affect the distribution of income in some way. And so we're going to talk about that as well. Okay. So what is the argument for redistribution? Why should we think of that as being fair or just in any sense? Soups, sorry. Got ahead of myself. One justification is utilitarianism. So discussing this at lunch with some people, the particular version of utilitarianism that I'm referring to is when economists say everybody has a utility function that he or she uses to make choices. You choose the kinds of goods, the spouse, the occupation, the location, the amount of consumption, whatever, that maximizes your utility. And there's some specific mathematical formula that relates your choices to a number. Now, if you think that that's a reasonable model of people and that everybody has the same utility function, that is, if you give me an apple, I get three utils. If I give you an apple, you get three utils, et cetera, for every single thing we could consider. And if you think that there's something known as diminishing marginal utility, which is fancy for saying a sandwich to a dying person or a you know, starving man is going to benefit that person a lot more than giving a sandwich to Bill Gates. Okay. Transferring wealth from the really wealthy to the poor hurts the wealthy, but only a little bit because they already have so much, but helps the poor a lot okay, because for them, there's a big impact of going from $1,000 of income to $2,000 of income, whereas that $1,000 means nothing to Mitt Romney or you know, whomever. Okay. That's the aspect of utilitarianism that people use to justify redistribution. Well, it turns out economists don't believe it at all because that model, that utility model, is not supported by any standard economic reasoning. The only thing economics says is that people can make choices. They can rank the different things that they want. But we have no way of knowing whether the utils, the happiness, the satisfaction that you get from an apple is higher or lower than the satisfaction that someone else gets. That's a completely arbitrary number. And so utilitarianism is a completely unpersuasive basis for arguing for redistribution of wealth. And in particular, it's dangerous because if the government can come in and says, I know how much value you get from different amounts of wealth, from different choices, whatever, then why can't the government say it knows better than you do whether you should listen to jazz or classical music, whether you should live in this part of the country or that, be in this occupation or that. And lots of governments do things like that. They tell people they have to be in these occupations. They tell parents that their kids have to join some program to train to be an Olympic athlete and so on and so forth. So utilitarianism is one, not at all justified by economics, and two, is potentially very dangerous. So I don't regard that as a reasonable basis. There's a different argument for redistribution 
that's less trivially dismissed, okay, is known as the veil of ignorance. It says, imagine that you were deciding on policies before you were born or behind this veil where you don't know whether you're going to end up being highly skilled or low skilled. Your parents who take good care of you or parents who don't. Being born with a dark skin or a light skin or whatever. Okay? So you have to decide what you want the distribution of income to look like before you know where you're going to be in that distribution. So it's reasonable to suggest that in that setting, some people would say, hmm, I guess I would be willing to pay something to make sure that I'm not at the bottom of that distribution. I'd be willing to buy some insurance against being born really unlucky and having a really crappy life from a material perspective, at least. Okay? And so if those assumptions are right, that's potentially an argument for the government to have a safety net, not for it really to redistribute from rich to poor, but for it provide some sort of anti-poverty policy that helps the people who are the least fortunate. It provides insurance against the bad luck of birth, which many people would allegedly be in favor of behind the veil of ignorance. Now, this is also a model. It's a set of assumptions. It's not God's truth or law of nature or anything. But it turns out it's way more appealing than the utilitarianism because there are assumptions that we can look at with evidence. We can see whether the pieces in that story okay, actually are convincing. So one part of this story is that private charity won't take care of people who are unlucky. Okay, if you think that private charity will help people who have the misfortune of their birth, then there's obviously much less of a reason to argue for government to be doing it. We can look at data on private charity. Okay? This argument also suggests, it, it assumes that the redistribution works in the sense of helping poor people be less poor. We can try to get data to look at that question. And Nothing in this argument says that you should redistribute entirely. It doesn't say you should equalize the distribution of income. It clearly accepts that if you try to, to always divide the pie evenly, people's incentive to produce the pie would go down. And so redistribution has incentive costs, okay, taxation costs, as we discussed earlier, and we can look at evidence okay, on that. So quickly, I will do some of that. Um, so this is just sort of for background. This shows you defense spending, Social Security, and Medicare as a percent of GDP, um, also the amount of interest spending okay, over time. So you can see wars really, really clearly. So this is the Civil War, this is World War I, World War II, Korea, and then gradually winding down. The interesting part for our purposes is this line here, the orangish line, which is Social Security, and then this line here, which is Medicare, you can see that relative to defense, these redistribution policies have become more and more important. And Social Security plus Medicare is now about 55, 60% of the budget. National defense is down to about 25, 30%. Okay, interest is a lot of the rest. So there's, there's actually not that much left in terms of expenditure. So starting from around the Depression, and especially with the advent of Medicare, U.S. spending on redistribution has gone up dramatically okay, in the, especially the second half of the post-World War II period. Okay, so there was a lot more attempt by government to redistribute income. Okay, this is exactly the same data, but it shows it to you for a shorter period, so it's a little clearer. Okay, defense spending in Korea, World War II, it was way back up here. Korea, Vietnam, Reagan defense buildup, okay, and then a little bit of buildup under Bush, anti-terrorism stuff. Uh, in the last decade or so, 
but defense overall clearly going down. Social Security okay, grew enormously okay, starting after World War II. You can see that Social Security is pretty stable and is projected to be pretty stable going out a long ways. That's why Social Security is not the worst entitlement that we have in terms, just in terms of budgetary issues. Um, and then here, Medicare, okay, which is obviously zero before 65 is created, is going up, and the projection for that is like this. Okay, so that's why all the entitlement debate should be about Medicare, or most of it should be about Medicare. Okay, so there's lots of government redistribution, but okay, there's a huge amount of private work okay, to help people. This is the volunteer rate in the United States, bounces around a little, okay, but it's at least 20, 25% in every year. Lots of people are voluntarily doing things to try to help others. Private charity looks pretty robust by that measure. Okay? This is a measure of private philanthropy okay, in the US. Now some of this is going to art museums, not to poor people, but lots of it is going to help poor people, to church soup kitchens and shelters and things like that. So the claim implicit in the veil of ignorance argument that we need government to provide okay, this safety net because the private sector won't do it because everybody will wait for somebody else to do it okay, because uh, they'll free ride on other people's efforts is clearly not right. There's tons of private charity okay, in the US, so that piece of the veil of ignorance argument is not nearly so persuasive. Second argument is, has anti-poverty spending been effective at reducing poverty? Well, here's real per capita anti-poverty spending over the last you know, 30 or whatever years, 40 some years. Okay, it went from about $1,000 per person to over $6,000 per person in inflation-adjusted terms. And look at the poverty rate. Other than a little bit of improvement here, okay, it just bounces around and does nothing in response to the anti-poverty spending. So, Again, the veil of ignorance provides a reason why you might want to consider okay, having a, social safe, a government social safety net that seems like we're spending an awful lot of money relative to any effect in reducing the amount of poverty. Okay. This okay, is about the effects of trying to have a generous social welfare program on the amount of output per capita. So what are the costs of responding to that veil of ignorance argument. So this black line here is the U.S. You can see that by you know, World War I, the U.S. is about the richest in terms of income per capita and basically stays that way throughout the sample. The U.K. Was, uh, was above us but then falls behind and ends up right here. You can see that some other countries, this was Japan, were clearly closing the gap with the U.S. up until the war, World War II. Of course, a bunch of countries took a huge hit in income per capita in World War II. Okay, not the U.S. Um, because we're on the right side, but we, of course, had had our great recession here. Okay, but you see for about 20, 25 years in this period, this convergence. You see that the difference between the poorest of these eight countries and the richest getting much smaller here than it is here. Well, that's exactly what common sense and economics would predict since the technology that the US and the richest countries were using is basically open to lots of people. You would imagine that the countries that were behind would gradually catch up, they'd gradually imitate, they would import our technologies and everything, and you would expect to see over a long period of time 
everybody sort of right at the same point as the poorest caught up to the richest. Now these are all rich countries, but the poorest of the rich countries. And yet, right around here, which is exactly when East, Western Europe is adopting their generous welfare state, is when it stops. Okay? Those countries are still growing. Those countries are still rich by world standards, but they don't seem to be catching up. It seems as though okay, the fact that they have all this overregulation relative to the US, the US has plenty, they have more, the fact that they have these very generous social welfare programs is limiting their ability to converge all the way to the US level of output per capita. So this is a measure and a suggestive piece of evidence that having a generous safety net, at least beyond some point, okay, is costly in terms of output per capita. So that's another thing that's not quite convincing, that's, that or at least needs to be taken into account in the veil of ignorance argument. Okay, so there's an argument that's not stupid for why governments might want to redistribute income and in particular provide a social safety net. Very different from the soak the rich stuff that uh, Democrats are obsessed with, but there is an argument. But that model, that perspective, has predictable, testable sort of assumptions, and those assumptions don't look very good. With respect to all other policies, many of them don't aim to, most of them do not aim to redistribute. Their objective is something else, but they do redistribute, and typically in ways that no one would consider equitable by any measure. And it's inevitable because almost any policy is going to create arbitrary winners and losers. And it creates a lot of wasted effort in trying to be one of the winners. So what are examples of all this arbitrary redistribution of income that government intervention causes? If, oops, sorry. If government is going to build roads, schools, whatever, any kind of construction project, some contractors get the contracts and others don't. They get rich relative to all the other ones. If the government's going to run airport security, then some company that had a good connection to the people at TSA or somebody in the White House is going to get the contract to sell all those scanners, and they're going to get rich. And then in a few years, they're going to convince the TSA that, oh, the, all those scanners we sold you and installed in all those airports, there's a much better one available. And you know it's only $6 million each. And they're going to try to sell us, and they, in fact, did sell us on adding all of those, and they're going to get rich. So one aspect of having the government do airport security, instead of just letting the airlines do airport security, Okay, is some private companies are going to get rich beyond any merit that they have relative to other companies. Clean air rules, companies that make the scrubbers, okay, they get rich because there's a mandate that every manufacturing firm has to have that equipment. Okay. Medicare reimbursement, okay. why does that create arbitrary winners and losers? Because somebody has to process all those claims. Somebody has to figure out which doctor gets paid, how much. So company, consulting companies and, and, and uh, accounting companies make lots of money dealing with that for the federal government. Same thing with high-stakes testing. Companies spend a lot of time creating those tests, monitoring those tests. They get rich okay, relative to other companies. Just say no campaigns. The government spent $200 million okay, hiring some big Madison Avenue advertising firm to do a remake of the This Is Your Brain, This Is Your Brain on Drugs ad. For those of you who are too young, the This Is Your Brain on Drugs was a frying pan an egg, a voiceover, and it says, as you see the egg, this is your brain, and it cracks it and goes in the hot frying pan and you know, bubbles and you know, gets all hot and everything says, this is your brain on drugs. Okay, so that's supposed to convince you not to smoke dope with your friends. This new ad for $200 million has a very attractive 20-something woman 
okay, in the kitchen with a frying pan and says something like, remember the old ad? Well, the new drugs are even worse. This is your brain on drugs now. And she's running around the kitchen like smashing dishes and stuff with this frying pan. That convinces anybody not to do drugs. That convinces people they should find that woman in the ad because you know, that's what happens if you go looking for drugs. It's just, and somebody made a lot of money making that ad. It's just completely outrageous. Um, state university tuition policy. Most states doesn't put much weight on the income of the families. So high-income families are being, getting these tuition subsidies while all the taxpayers are paying to run state universities. That, again, is an arbitrary redistribution. Um, regulation, all the same sorts of things. Some people have, find it easy to get around the regulation or are willing to evade the regulation, so they get rich relative to everybody else. Um, licensing restrictions, and on and on. So I'm getting pretty much out of time. I can see Tom getting nervous back there. <laughs> um, I think I have like three minutes, yes? Four minutes, whatever, okay. So um, I'm, I'm basically at the end. Even if you accept the goal of flattening the distribution of income, okay, that policy has real cost, and there's limited evidence for its effectiveness. And in particular, okay, the aspects of that that take the form of soaking the rich, okay, as opposed to you know, trying to help people who are very poor, okay, clearly li very limited evidence and very serious costs. Okay? In addition, there's tons of interventions okay, that uh, reward good luck of your birth, your connections, your willingness to be dishonest and all that. Okay? So um, th that are inevitable as a result of those in, in, uh, interventions. So equity is still another argument for small government, not for big government, because it avoids arbitrary redistributions, because it means that the people who get higher incomes are the ones who worked harder, had better ideas, were more successful in the marketplace, as opposed to being connected to some politician who could hand out favors. So one last piece of evidence on that. Okay, this is, I think, Tom's favorite graph. Okay, this is a consumption per capita going back to 1,000 BC up to approximately the present. Okay? So you can see that there's this huge change, increase in consumption per capita that starts around um, 1800 or so. So what happened shortly before 1800? Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. Okay? Now, it would be a little heroic to attribute this just to one book, but much more broadly, okay, the notion that free market capitalism was a good thing, that markets were uh, important, that individual liberty was important, was getting wider attention, was being implemented more and more. And we see this amazing change in the material well-being of society. Okay? And it didn't just affect the Mitt Romneys or the Bill Gates or the Steve Jobs. It affected a huge fraction of the population that went from living in horrible subsistence lifestyles to more reasonable and moderate um, level standards of living, okay, and that's sort of an incredibly important argument for markets, okay, over interventions. Okay, so I like to refer to my description as libertarian land. Um, to some people, libertarian land sounds truly bizarre, okay, you think it would be chaotic, violent, disease infested with the rich elites living off the poor. Um, I think that Consequential libertarian predicts exactly the opposite and that the evidence supports that. So my bottom line is simple. Small government isn't perfect, but it's much better than the alternative. Thank you very much.
We have to only have time for one question, but I'm going to be here for the next three days. So happy to discuss with any and all. Please. There we go. I think you're on. So you prefaced your talk with um, um, the comment that, um, let me find this on here so we um, don't screw it up. So you're talking about differences in values not being crucial and didn't matter whether it was efficiency, liberty, or equity that this was based on, and that may be true, but uh, differences in motivations may be. And perhaps I'm just cynical, I think it's actually more realistic, and that is motivations do matter. And there are those of us who think, for example, that the Affordable Care Act was less an um, attempt at uh, providing health care to the poor uh, or to the needy, in which case your um, values argument may be correct, but it was more an example of attempting to take over one-seventh of, um, um, of, of the economy. And viewed that way, um, values, I think, do matter. Um, uh, I think that, um, and perhaps, perhaps I'm being cynical, but I don't let me, think let me, so. Let me just take it from there, since we're almost basically out of time. I totally agree that the motivations of many of the politicians are completely cynical, whatever else you want to call them. I was mainly speaking to sort of reasonable people, what I call reasonable people, not politicians, who say, I understand your arguments for libertarianism, small government being efficient, but I don't think it's fair or just. And I want to say, no, I think if we think carefully about what's fair, just, okay, equitable, you come down exactly the same direction. It actually reinforces the argument for small government. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom.